Good morning, everybody. My name is Mary. I'm one of the members here. I'll be reading for us from Scripture today. Our reading will be Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. I rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, my brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Mary. Let's pray together as we look to God's word. Father, there is very little that causes uh, turmoil in our spirit quite as much as conflict, as anxiety, as the fears of being not in control of our earthly lives, our circumstances, the people around us, any number of things well up we all know the great spiritual dangers that can come with these things. And yet we thank you that in this passage, we will see your care for us, even still. Your concern for the things that cause us anxiety and your longing to be with us and give us peace. God, we pray we would experience this kind of peace even this morning as we look to your word, that you would give us a great reassurance that you are at hand here with us, eager to help through our anxiety and conflict. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Imagine you are at odds with someone here at church your heart is heavy every time you show up here. It feels virtually impossible to let go of your hurt feelings and to focus on your spiritual life. All of a sudden, it doesn't feel like you're striving side by side with these fellow members in this cosmic battle between good and evil. It feels in some ways like church is the battle, and it's not going particularly well. Some of you, I'm sure, have been there before. Maybe some of us are here even this morning just wondering if we will ever find a way forward, wondering if we can ever experience peace at church again. But what if there was a kind of peace we could experience that would set our relationships right 
and even keep them reliably in, in good standing for the long haul? What if there was a peace that just surpasses all earthly understanding, a peace that comes from outside of us entirely? What if we could experience a peace from above, a heavenly peace? Last week, Paul emphasized the importance of having a heavenly resurrection mindset if we want to endure the earthly trials and persecution we'll face for the sake of Christ. And he added uh, um, that passage, he ended that passage rather, with an impassioned plea to the Philippians. If you look back, just one verse, it's, he wrote, Therefore, my brothers, in other words, because we are heavenly citizens, which he just mentioned, in other words, because someday this King Jesus will return to resurrect our lowly bodies to be like his body, which he just mentioned, for those reasons, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. He really lays it on thick, right? And he says, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is what we should use our resurrection mindsets to do. It's to stand firm through hardship. If Paul has one call to action for the Philippians in this letter, this is it. He wants them to stand firm thus in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is this humble, highly exalted king that we read about in chapter two, whose upward call we are all sharing in. We need to stand firm thus in him as we press on together in that upward call of his. Even when we're faced with rejection, even when we're faced with opposition, even when we're faced with conflict in the life of the church. Next, as Paul rounds the corner toward the end of this letter, he directly addresses a problem in the life of this church, more than likely a problem that was keeping people from pressing on in this way, Apparently, there was a disagreement between two women who served as leaders in this church in some capacity, Judea and Syntyche, and here Paul calls them in a letter addressed to the whole church to agree in the Lord. Work it out. It's possible this disagreement between these two was the source of the grumbling or the disputes that we read earlier in the letter but either way, this dispute must have had a big impact in the church because Paul even appeals to someone who he calls true companion in, in hopes that whoever he's referring to there would help these women to work through their conflict. Now, there's a wide range of opinions as to who Paul might be referring to there. Some think it may be Epaphroditus, the one who Paul was sending back to the Philippians, likely with this letter in his hand to deliver it, the one who this church initially sent to Paul to care for him during his time in prison. That's certainly possible. It's almost certainly the case that Epaphroditus is the one Paul heard about this conflict through, through his report of the church back in Philippi. But one scholar, Moises Silva, puts it this way. He, he posits that on the basis of our, our limited information, 
the most reasonable interpretation is that this phrase is, in effect, Paul's way of inviting the various members of the church to prove themselves loyal. To prove themselves loyal, presumably, by even playing some role in helping these two women to resolve the conflict between them. In other words, it could be that he's referring to each member of the church, each reader of this letter, individually as true companion. That's possible. It doesn't really say, it's hard to know for sure, but the point is this, this disagreement was not helping the Philippians to press on toward this upward call of God in Christ, and therefore, before wrapping up this letter, Paul had to address it, which for some of us might even cause a kind of anxiety in and of itself, because we just hate conflict. We hate it. We, we don't want to address it. We don't want to talk about it. We get anxious about sermons related to conflict. We just want to avoid it because in our experience, when we do try to address it, it hardly ever ends in peace. If we're even going to go there for some of us, it feels like we're going to need some serious help. Well, thankfully, in our passage, Paul is trying to guide this church through the conflict they're in, We're going to see he does that by arguing the heavenly King Jesus wants to help us through earthly conflict. So we're going to look at our passage today, and what we're going to do is we're just going to consider the peace we need. What kind of peace are we talking about? And then also how to pursue it. And so first, I want you to notice the kind of peace we need, according to Paul, is not just a typical, conventional, earthly kind of peace. Uh, This is the peace of God in heaven. That is the peace he's calling us to strive towards. You see, it turns out this humble, highly exalted king, the one who rose again and was seated on high back in chapter 2, the one whose upward call we're sharing in, that Lord, Paul says here, is at hand, which means simply he's, he's near to us. He is not just high and lofty up there. He is also with us. He is also among us. He's present down here. And this is particularly good news for us when we face conflict in the church because it means we now have access to a different kind of peace, which Paul says it just surpasses all understanding. To most people, as they look out on the outside looking in, they just think, well, that that." kind of peace doesn't make sense. I I know these people. That peace is not going to work. And it does. On one hand, this is a strange, otherworldly kind of peace that comes from up there in heaven. And yet on the other hand, it is ours to benefit from. Like now, down here on earth, even at church, As you read Philippians, it's tempting to assume that Paul just wants us to almost check out of this earthly life, as if it just doesn't really matter. Uh, And I'm convinced that would entirely miss the point of the letter. Instead, what Paul is trying to do is to help us see the heavenly significance of our earthly lives, particularly when they're unpleasant, (laughs) particularly when they're marked with all kinds of suffering and rejection. He wants us to see that this humble, highly exalted king up there actually cares about all the things we suffer down here. He understands. He can relate. And more than that, he wants to help us 
through it all. The point is, I think, if we don't see our earthly lives in this way, then we will never uh, stand firm thus in the Lord. We, We will be overcome with despair. But if we do see our lives in this way, then we can stand firm thus in Christ. We can press on in this upward call. This whole letter, really, is about experiencing King Jesus' heavenly life in, through, and amidst our earthly suffering. And with that in mind, toward the end of our passage, Paul gives the Philippians a list of things to think on and a list of practices to practice. And notice what will happen as a result of them doing this. He says, and the God of peace will be with you. Here again, the peace we need comes from the God up there being with us down here. Church, when we face conflict and disputes as members of redemption, this is our hope. This is our hope. It's not just that we can kind of navigate our way through it or find some sort of savvy solution to resolve our conflict. No, it's it's way better than that. It's that the God of heaven, this humble, highly exalted King Jesus, he's truly with us. He is guiding and helping us towards a heavenly peace we could never access on our own. In fact, I want you to notice where this peace, according to Paul, is found. It is found, he says, in Christ. Judea and Syntyche are called not just to agree, but notice, but to agree in the Lord. In other words, their mutual union with him and the bond they share spiritually in him is what should compel them to agree, is what should compel them not to look to their own interests, but to consider each other's interests more important than their own. Then the whole church is called to rejoice, but not just to rejoice, to rejoice in the Lord as they work through these things together. And the way this piece even works is notice that it guides our hearts and our minds where? In Christ Jesus. So this idea of accessing spiritual benefits in Christ is really, really fascinating to me. Uh, earlier, Paul told us to have this sort of mind among us, remember, which is ours, he said, in Christ. Just last week, he told us to keep straining toward this prize of the upward call of God in Christ. It's almost like this is not just some passing phrase for Paul. It's not just sort of spiritual talk. This is deeply embedded in his theology In Paul's mind, those who believe in Jesus are actually included in him, in this profound, spiritual, and yet very real sort of way. And this is essentially what it means, I'm convinced, to be a member of Christ's body. We are included in him in the same way that a lung is included in or one small part of a larger body. In other words, the heavenly peace Paul's referring to here is a corporate peace that is meant to be enjoyed in the body of Christ by those whom God called upward in his son, by those who share in his upward resurrected life. The goal is not just that we agree. The goal is that we agree as members of Christ in him. The goal is not simply that we rejoice, each of us separately, but that we rejoice together in Christ 
as his body. And as we do, as we seek after this peace as members of Christ's body, it's as if we have access to this whole new kind of peace in him that we never would have had access to before. I can't help but wonder if the reason this heavenly peace surpasses all understanding is that in the meantime, while we work these things out down here, we're all still sinful. Uh, It's not as if our hearts or our minds are fully restored. We still have sin that we bring to the table, but this peaceful presence of King Jesus among us, it guards our hearts and our minds in him. In other words, left unguarded, our hearts and minds will not guide us toward this heavenly peace. Left unguarded, our hearts and minds will lead us towards grumbling, towards disputes, towards all kinds of strife. And this may be why most people don't expect to experience the peace that we need. Maybe why this doesn't make any sense to most people. It's because the kind of peace we need just actually doesn't come from any earthly source, including our flesh. We need a different kind of peace that comes from a different kind of source altogether, namely this humble, resurrected king of heaven, the one we've been included in. We need our hearts and minds to be guarded in him, in close spiritual proximity to Jesus. We will only experience this peace to the extent that we know this Lord of peace, to the extent that we know and and experience and call on him at hand, near to us eager to help us and to give us access to his peace-filled mind if we stand firm thus together in him. That is, if we let King Jesus up there help us through earthly conflict down here. That is the kind of peace we really need. But next, now that we kind of know what this peace is and and where it comes from, for the rest of our time, I want to share five ways that Paul encourages us to pursue this heavenly peace. First, uh, we pursue this peace from above, number one, by rejoicing in the Lord always. There is a direct correlation between our rejoicing in Christ and our experience of this peace. They rise and they fall together. And this makes sense. We typically don't experience peace when we're down in the dumps dwelling on all of our hardships. And the opposite is true as well. Rejoicing and peace kind of go hand in hand. They get along great. They're really good friends. I want you to imagine being at a kid's birthday party. Right when they finish the birthday song, everyone sort of cheers. He blows out the candles. And then as the noise starts to fade away, that friend or family leans over and says, hey, I've been meaning to talk to you about something you said. It's been really bothering me. (laughs) Right? Even if they have a really valid concern, even if it's eventually really important for you to have that conversation, any reasonable person would think, like, now, right? As Jimmy's blowing out the birthday candles, right? Are you seriously going to dive into a conflict with me while they cut and pass out this cake? We're kind of rejoicing here, right? (laughs) There is something about joy and rejoicing that is just incompatible with strife. And, and conflict. And so I want to ask you this morning, Christian, when is the last time you've simply thanked God for sending his son to save you? How often do we do 
that kind of rejoicing. Just consider what this kind of thankfulness in our hearts to God does to our inner life, right? It has a way of humbling us and reminding us that we don't deserve to be redeemed, that we don't deserve even to be reconciled with God. It puts our eyes on all the sin in our lives that God had to overlook in order to redeem us, which can fill us with this kind of joy that makes it really, really hard for us to be prickly with everyone else, right? If God has lavished so much grace and mercy on us, who are we then to turn and give none to anyone else? Could it be that if we dwelt more on our thankfulness to God for Jesus, that maybe we wouldn't be so given to grumbling or disputes or disagreements? Could it be that reflecting regularly on all the undeserved blessings we have in Jesus might make us a bit more slow to fight for our interests or to demand others' respect? If we're feeling unsettled or discontent in one way or another, could it be that one of the factors fueling this strife in our hearts may be a lack of gratitude to God for the grace and the mercy of the gospel? Church, let's pursue the peace of God above first by being thankful and rejoicing in our salvation. And next, we can also pursue this heavenly peace by relating to one another reasonably, reasonably. In other words, by letting our reasonableness be known to one another and to everyone, as Paul says here. Which is to say, the reason we engage with others in the way that we do should be both evident, it's not sort of hidden or secretive as if there's something going on under the surface, and it should also be understandable. Most people should look at the way we relate and think, yeah, that makes sense, I understand why they would do that. There, there's no reason to suspect that maybe there's this hidden agenda or personal interest driving that relationship. We're, we're not assuming the absolute worst about everyone else or holding them to some unfair standard. We're interacting with others in a way that's transparent, a way that's humble, in a way that's just it's generally Christ-like. A similar New Testament phrase for this uh, for example, it would actually be to be sober-minded. This is one of the qualifications of serving as an elder, as opposed to a, a thought life, by the way, that, that is, that's intoxicated by all kinds of sinful ideas, like greed or pride, fear, insecurity. Right? We're not drunk on these kinds of thoughts. We are sober-minded. We are reasonable. This is so important in the life of a church and just in the Christian life in general, it's so important for us to keep one another accountable in this way because, of course, we want to be open and sensitive to one another's concerns or challenges in life, but it can also be sort of difficult to discern when we've stopped being concerned and we've started being unreasonable, right? When, when our passions for our interests lead us down a, just a dark spiritual path, and so as we process concerns we have, even with other members of the church, which is inevitable, in some cases even important to do, uh, what if we helped each other to consider, are you being reasonable here? Are we being reasonable? For example, have you really listened well and truly understood the full context of the situation? 
Or is part of the strife the fact that you're filling in gaps in unhelpful ways because of something that you don't know? Are you assuming a bunch of terrible things about this other person's motives even though they've not done anything to suggest that those terrible things are actually true of them? Are there any unresolved conflicts or tensions between you and that other person, which, which may be the real source of issues here that actually are coloring the way you view and interact with them in other ways? Are, are there any really important details uh, that you seem to be ignoring or minimizing in order to make your case seem stronger and theirs seem weaker, right? These are all subtle ways that we can experience what the author of Hebrews says, the hardening of our heart by the deceitfulness of sin. Our minds can gravitate away from reasonability and towards self-focused grumbling and disputes. But thankfully, church, again, this humble, highly exalted king is also near. So we can slow down, we can rest in him, and we can relate to one another reasonably. Next, we can also pursue this heavenly peace together by bringing our anxiety to God. Uh, if there is one thing that tends to make us unreasonable, one thing that tends to keep us from rejoicing, it is almost certainly anxiety, right? We fear and have intense worry in our hearts, particularly when important details are just out of our control and we don't know how things will go. And when we do experience this, I'm sure we can all relate, the pressure that this anxiety places on our inner life, it can really build. It can mount until it starts to feel like, I just have to go somewhere with this pressure, and that's often the source of our conflicts, when we let it go. Now, at first, Paul's instruction here may seem a little bit insensitive, if we're honest. Uh, he just says, do not be anxious about anything. It's really hard not to read that and think, okay, Paul. I'll give that a shot, right? Um, it's, it's, if it were that easy to just not be anxious, I'm sure most of us would do it. But it seems like his solution to avoiding anxiety is not just to stop experiencing it. Notice his solution has everything to do with where we go with our anxiety, where we take it. In particular, he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, don't just run to that close friend to vent to them in an unfiltered sort of way. <laughs> uh, don't just run from the whole situation or hit eject to kind of find some sort of escape. No, if the peace we need is a heavenly peace that comes from the spiritual proximity to God, then of course, when we feel this pressure building up in our inner lives, we have to take that pressure upward. We, we have to take it to God in prayer. So, so when there is a tension, for example, between you and another member of the church, for instance, when it seems like your interests and their interests are at odds, maybe even mutually exclusive, or the pressures of life and ministry in whatever way just seem to mount until they almost blow, where do we go with that anxiety? Where do we take it? First, we can see we need to take it to God in prayer. And this means, I think at the very least, slowing down the pace when these tensions rise. It means giving space to our inner spiritual life so that it can start to look and feel and sound more like Psalm 139. Here's an excerpt from that. The psalmist writes, Search me, O God, 
and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting, right? Guide me toward your heavenly peace. So much damage can be done in a church when we let our hurt feelings, even in some cases valid hurt feelings, steer and guide our relationships with one another. Rather than bringing these fears, anxieties, and hurt feelings to the Lord, rather than drawing near to him so that he can help and guide our hearts and minds rather than having them be guided by those hurt feelings. First and foremost, we need to bring our anxieties to God in prayer. But then once we've brought our anxieties to God in this way, we also have to go to that brother or sister we have this disagreement with. Now, that part of this passage is not particularly hard to see. Frankly, it's exactly what Paul's trying to do in this passage. He's calling two specific members and therein encouraging this entire church to work through a particular conflict. In a sense, he's encouraging all of them to bring the anxieties within their church to the Lord. So if we think the idea of, of meaningful membership, for example, is sort of strange, where, where we actually expect one another to address conflict, we even ask members to get involved if necessary, if that seems kind of weird and yucky to us, imagine how Yudia and Sintiki felt when this letter was read that Sunday at the church in Philippi, right? Don't miss this. God has inspired Paul to write these words. And so apparently he felt it would be a good idea for this conflict to be enshrined in the canon of Scripture for all of church history so that these two will forever be remembered as the two who had that disagreement back in the first century. Right? Picture seeing these two in the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, that's, that's Judea and Syntyche. Hey, did you guys ever patch that up? I, we're just kind of, I mean, we never got the end of the story. So I think one simple takeaway is that as members of Christ's church, if we hear of other members either disparaging the church or disparaging another member, we are responsible to help them address that. This is all part of our bringing anxieties and conflict to the Lord. No matter which member it is, we are at least responsible enough to insist that they bring these anxieties to God in prayer and then also to this brother or sister they have the disagreement with. Because church, listen, the unity of King Jesus' body and, and frankly, the upward call we're all sharing in is at stake here. This is a much bigger deal than the minor inconvenience of an uncomfortable conversation. It really is. But more importantly, we can do this we can bring our anxieties both to the Lord and, and to one another because the Lord is at hand. He's with us. We're not alone in this. We don't have to do it by our own strength. This King Jesus wants to help and guide our hearts and minds. He wants to help us deal with our anxiety in a way that honors his Father. And so, church, we can trust that the God of peace is with us in our anxiety and our conflict. Next, we can also pursue this heavenly peace together by dwelling on what is good. By dwelling on what is good. If we want this God of peace to be with us, if we want him to help us through conflict, then we have to think 
about specific kinds of things. I want you to notice, according to Paul, we have to think about things that are good. They're just good. Whatever is true, he says, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, that these are the thoughts that need to dominate our resurrection mindset if we want God of heavenly peace, this God of heavenly peace, to help us through earthly conflict. Which is to say, uh, our minds should not be consumed with things like cynicism, distrust, suspicion, doubt, right? We'll never live together in peace if we're constantly thinking of and searching for whatever is half true or maybe true, whatever is dishonorable, whatever is unjust, whatever is impure, whatever is unlovely, whatever is not worth commending, if there are any mistakes, if there is anything worth critiquing, right? These days, the people who are most upset most often and most skeptical seem to be taken most seriously. But Paul would not have encouraged us to operate in this way. I want us to see a proud, self-exalting, earthly mind is the mind that constantly assesses what everyone else thinks and does in relation to what that mind wants to think and do. And the specific goal of this kind of downward earthly mind is to exalt itself, which means that it almost forces us to view everyone else in the worst possible light, as if sort of the worse I can make everyone else seem, the higher and more exalted I will seem. Meanwhile, the upward resurrected mind rejoices in the Lord. It rejoices in the fact that a good and gracious and merciful God has given us mercy. And it thinks on what is good and is pure. It's not constantly led astray by the next angry or cynical thought. And so one simple takeaway, I think, is that when we feel the pressures and anxiety mounting in our inner life, when we sense the spiritual content of our minds growing more and more dim and dark, this needs to be a huge red flag in our spiritual lives. We have to be really honest with ourselves. My mind is, is not in a good place right now. I need this heavenly king to guard it for me, or I will take it somewhere that won't be good when we start to think in this way, we should envision the blinking alarm lights and the faster and faster beeps of an airplane cockpit as it careens downward toward the earth. Sort of beep, 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 beep. It's exactly what a cynical, angry mind will do in our inner life. It will drag us down. What we need instead is a mind that, that grasps hold of what is good, of what is pure. So that beep, 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 beep. We can kind of climb back up to a more heavenly altitude, if you will. And, and finally, we can pursue this heavenly peace together by practicing the way of the gospel. Practicing the way of the gospel. Apparently, there was a set of practices that Paul and his fellow workers passed on to this church. Uh, practices that this 
church and its members would have learned, received, heard, and seen as a result of their time with Paul. Now, based on all that we know about Paul and his ministry practices, I imagine, I hope, those practices were very similar to the kind of ministry that we practice together on a regular basis. For example, it may have included things like weekly worship gatherings, corporate prayer and preaching and singing, church membership and discipline, which Paul gives specific instructions for us in 1 Corinthians, how to handle those things. Uh, The Lord's Supper, baptism, uh, developing elders and deacons, sending and collaborating with other gospel workers who are committed to making disciples for the sake of the gospel. And of course, in general, we want to practice all these things in a humble, Christ-like way, but these are things we do as a church specifically because we see them practiced and encouraged all over the New Testament. And more than that, not only do we practice these things at redemption, but we even try not to practice a long list of other potential, maybe even often good things, so that it's clear that these timeless spiritual practices are the ones that matter most to us. And in large part, we approach church life in this way because of passages like this one. Because, like Paul, we're convinced that God himself works through these specific practices. And as Paul says here, if we give ourselves to these spiritual practices together, there's a very real, tangible, spiritual outcome of it. Namely, the God of peace will be with us in these things. I think this needs to change the way we think about the life of our church Uh, and the ministry practices that we prioritize. These are not just a marketing strategy to attract a certain kind of person to Redemption Church. No, they truly are spiritual practices that God uses and has throughout the history of his church to enrich the faith of his people, to bind them together in love, and to help them to stand firm in his Son. So we should approach them expecting that by faith God will use these things in our lives in this way. In other words, if we are in a disagreement with another member of the church, for example, what should we do? Well, in one sense, we should keep practicing these things. Trusting that the God of peace will be with us as we do, that he's guarding in our hearts and our minds in Christ in a way that will help us through, that will help us to honor God. For instance, Keep showing up to church each week, even when it's hard, rather than slowly and silently drifting away. Consider the real spiritual bond and commitment we share with each member of the church, even when it gets hard. Frankly, that's in large part why it matters so much when it gets hard. We trust that God is honored in these things when it gets hard. He really cares about us in the church through those situations. He uses our commitment to one another for our good. Uh, Listen to each sermon expectantly, looking for ways that God can use that specific passage to speak directly into our fellowship together, especially when it's hard. Uh, When you take the Lord's Supper with us, take a moment to stop and ask yourself, is there a conflict between me and another member here that will actually make me taking this meal a bit disingenuous, if I'm really honest? As if I'm saying, hey, yay, Jesus died to reconcile me with all these people, but I'm not <laughs> actually reconciled with all these people. Uh, when you get the list of new members being recommended, 
coming up at the new members gathering to share in this upward call of God in Christ. Take your time to pray over each of those names, uh, to try and connect at least the face with that name because these are people we are called to stand firm thus in the Lord with. When guest preachers come from other churches, which they'll be doing in the coming weeks, uh, don't just consider these a week you can check out, but rather a week to practice, to, to experience, and to celebrate the bigness of God's kingdom. It far surpasses even just the work that he's doing in this church. We're not alone in this upward call. We're not alone in this cosmic war between heaven and earth. Any time the life of our church gets hard, church, let's keep practicing these things in faith. As if this God really is with us. And he really does guard our hearts and our minds. And we really are sharing in the upward life of his resurrected son. Do you believe that we truly are? Will you approach conflict in this church as if all these things we've seen today are really true? Do we really trust that the exalted King Jesus can help us through whatever anxiety or conflict we experience? Let's pray together that he would. Father, we, we humble and quiet our hearts before you now and even in a corporate sense, want to bring whatever anxieties or stresses or strife we have among us before you, God. We want to lay them at the foot of your son, Jesus' cross. We thank you that in him we have seen the ultimate cosmic model of self-giving humility that the solution to tension and strife is not to fight and to insist on our own way or interests, but to lay them down for the sake of one another. And we pray, God, all the more today that we would have that mind among us because it is ours in him. And we pray that you would help us to experience this kind of heavenly peace that surpasses all understanding. God, do this in ways that only you can do by the power of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.